0: Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news, and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. We will, of course, be chatting with Adam Boileau in just a moment about all the week's security news. And after that, we're going to hear from this week's sponsor, Grey Noise, and uh, Grey Noise founder Andrew Morris joins us uh, this week to talk about what he's been up to. And he is always a lot of fun to talk to, so do stick around for that one. That is coming up later, but first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news. And Adam, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to start off by talking about a gentleman uh, who has been convicted uh, of the theft of Bitcoin. Uh, in in the United States. And and this is someone who I feel a little bit sorry for, I'm going to be honest.
1: (laughs) Yes, this is the case of James Yong, uh, who found a bug in uh, the Silk Road's payment processing system such that you could make multiple withdrawals of your Bitcoin, so you could deposit Bitcoin into your account for credit to buy drugs with, but you could also withdraw Bitcoin out of your accounts. And there was some kind of race where if you did multiple simultaneous withdrawals, you would get the Bitcoin many times. And so he uh, showed that's up. Some, uh, that's some
0: good coding by internet evil mastermind, uh, what's his face, Ross Ulbricht. Nice work there, guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
1: so yeah, this guy deposited, you know, uh, a couple of thousand Bitcoin, withdrew it many, many, many times, uh, ended up with 50,000 Bitcoin,
0: <laughs> Yeah. which
1: is quite a bit uh, something like a billion dollars now, maybe three billion dollars worth of stolen bitcoin. Uh, and um, yeah they, then many many years pass and uh, it turns out that the immutable blockchain record uh, that uh, you know Bitcoin enthusiasts are proud of, is also an immutable record of your crimes.
0: Yes, I mean, this is something that we've spoken about on the show, which is that we were going to start seeing people being convicted of historical crimes because blockchain analysis tools are good now, right? And, (laughs) um, you know, here we have a perfect example of that. Now, you know, they say that he hid his transactions through a complex web of blah, 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 blah. But when you actually read, like, the release from the DOJ, what it looks like he did is he didn't touch the Bitcoin. But when Bitcoin got forked into Bitcoin cash, he took the Bitcoin cash, converted that into more Bitcoin, and then he used that, right? So this, like, I think this guy knew that the Bitcoin itself was too hot, but thought, oh, they won't be watching the Bitcoin cash, and, uh, you know, I'm just going to convert that um that Bitcoin cash back into Bitcoin and then I can use that and everything will be sweet. But uh, it turns out, no, no, that's not, that's not how it works.
1: No, it it appears to not be the case. So his house got raided, uh, they found the $3 billion worth of Bitcoin, like on a, some kind of embedded device, like in a. What was it like a popcorn tin box underneath yep. some blankets in the bathroom? Yeah, um, and he also had uh, you know, invested some money in uh, you know property companies and gold bars and and whatever else, and had about six hundred thousand dollars worth of cash just kicking around as you do. Uh, and yes, uh, he has now pled guilty to doing these crimes, and I don't know what kind of sentencing you get for stealing three billion dollars. I mean, it's imaginary money. But on the other hand, three billion dollars is quite a lot. And now yeah, but if you're of-
0: stealing it from a from a platform that facilitates like heroin trading, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like maybe they should have just given him five bucks and a sun hat and called it a day. You know, like give him a, give him an FBI hat. You
1: know, <laughs> that's cool. Because well, of course, the government has now, you know, seized this bitcoin, and and now it's got three billion dollars worth of revenue from from a heroin. Well, one market, billion so now, thanks well, to we, thanks yeah, to crypto markets. But yeah, I mean, I, I think
0: this answers the question: Why don't they just give him a pat on the back? And it's because they want the billion dollars, right?
1: <laughs> well, and they're, and they're going to get it, plus his gold bars and and, and whatever else. Yeah. But yeah, I we we as you said, we had kind of predicted that this would happen, and much like you know, every time someone gets Krebs, it's because you know, they didn't maintain their OPSEC 15 years ago when they registered to some dumb internet forum to ask questions about programming. And now they're a cyber criminal, you know, mastermind and you go down because you haven't changed your handle for 10 years. In the same way, like people doing Bitcoin crimes 10 years ago, 15 years ago, yeah I mean, they're still investigating. Maybe the long arm of the law is, does not move fast, but it looks like I it's mean getting I, there.
0: I think there's got to be some sort of threshold here, right? Where if you ripped off 100 grand in Bitcoin from Silk Road, you know, Bitcoin that is now worth 100 grand, you're probably okay. But if you ripped off, like, a billion (laughs) dollars, you know, (laughs) uh, they're probably going to bother with you, you know, to be honest. Yeah,
1: so we'll see what sort of sentence he gets. We haven't seen yet. I mean, obviously, Ross Ulbricht famously got a, you know, life sentence. Uh, I don't know what you get for stealing $3 billion from criminals, but... Yeah. Probably not a hat and five bucks.
0: No, but probably not twenty years either. So we'll just have to wait and see, you know. And of course, it's like you know, an old crime now, so he'll be able to go to the sentencing judge and say, "Well, look, you know, I'm I'm a good boy now, and I don't commit yeah. crimes." And anyway, I rehabilitated we'll see. myself. <laughs> yes, exactly. With all of my stolen loot, <laughs> all, live a very nice life. I'm great now. Um, what do we got here? We got a story. Yeah, a couple stories now about Medibank. Now, last week when I introduced uh, our discussion about Medibank here in Australia, I forgot to say that Medibank Australia is a private health insurance company with many millions of customers, right? So that's what Medibank do. Uh, they had a whole bunch of data stolen and uh, it was ransomed. Uh, it, they tried to drop uh, uh, ransomware, but it looks like they failed. And um, yeah, so the the attackers had managed to exfiltrate data and uh, we got some details on that data, like 160,000 health records, I think, for their core customers. and. Um, they have like a low cost subsidiary and a few hundred thousand uh, medical records for customers of that arm uh, got taken as well. Anyway, they, uh, they were being blackmailed, you know, pay us millions of dollars, presumably millions of dollars or we will uh, release the data. Medibank came out yesterday and said, no, we're not going to pay uh, because there's no guarantee that you're going to delete the data. So we're just not going to do it. And uh, yeah, sure enough, the data is now being released on the dark web.
1: Yeah, uh, yes, I mean, that is, I guess, a consequence that we could have foreseen there, but you can't, you know, if you support this you know, business of, of crime, you encourage them, you know, you're just making it worse. And I think the Australian government has made it pretty clear that they don't want entities to go and pay criminals because it just kind of perpetuates the, yes. the set of the, the crimes. And yeah, I mean, I agree that paying them is a terrible idea, but it just sucks for people whose data is now being... Yeah, posted on the internet.
0: No, I mean, and I can imagine it was a rather tortured process for the people who had to make this decision because, yeah, I mean, there would be, there is a strong argument for paying, uh, but the, I think the argument against paying is stronger. Now, you know, keep in mind, paying ransoms here in Australia not illegal, right? Medibank could have done it, uh, but the Australian government was urging them not to, and uh, and they haven't.
1: Yes, yeah I, yeah, I just feel bad for all the poor consumers and people, you know, who bought the service, and you know, what advice can you give them rather than? sorry, right? I mean, there's nothing much they can do. You lose your privacy once, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, now let's move on and talk about the absolutely massive global intelligence operation that Qatar stood up uh, to help it secure the uh, FIFA World Cup. We've seen uh, multiple reports coming out of Switzerland. You know, we got like ex-CIA people involved in this. We've got Indian hacker hacker for hire uh, companies in in part of this sort of, you know, uh, intelligence project supply chain and, you know, as we like to say, can open... Work Everywhere.
1: Yeah, this is a pretty fascinating story, a really interesting investigation. Um, it must have been so much work pulling all the bits together to, to tell this story well. Um, but yeah, the basic gist of it is, um, you know, that there was a, a company run by some ex-CIA people who were, you know, offering Qatar services to, you know, hack all sorts of people involved. Um, with uh, FIFA and, you know, politicians and other people uh, that were putting negative pressure on FIFA about awarding Qatar the World Cup at the time. Uh, and this is you know, a pretty extensive campaign. I think the the uh, journalists have gotten hold of, like, the price options for it, and the low end of this, which apparently is what the Qataris took, was, you know, 387 million US dollars worth of work, the high end, you know, much, much more than that. Um, and it, you know, describes all sorts of things you would expect from, you know, maybe nation state level intelligence operations being sold as a commercial service to a, you know, a not particularly nice government perhaps. And, you know, there's uh, the tendrils of this go all, all around the world, right? There's, you know, British politicians and soccer players and administrations, uh, people at FIFA, there's people involved with the competing bids in the U.S. Uh, to host And, the and Australia,
0: Cup. like f- uh, Frank Lowy, who's an Australian billionaire, who is, um, you know, a big deal person here, but they, they, have- actually pointed out in this that he's actually quite a hard target because he has lots of money
1: <laughs> yes so it sounded like his offset was slightly above average which is great um but yeah i mean we when we've talked about hackers for hire so this this company was using uh, you know an indian company to do the actual hacking you know we've always uh, you know wanted to see those the big picture of you know the full set of you know who's buying what for how does it work how long how successful was it and we've got some really great data because there's been data leaked from this um, hacker for hire firm that has, you know, some notes about how successful they were, you know, which campaigns worked. Uh, So there's just so much, you know, interesting data in here about this very shady business. And of course, you know, there are other customers, other aspects um, beyond just the kind of Qatar, FIFA, World Cup tie up.
0: Yeah, and uh, meanwhile, the Washington Post is reporting that the guy who runs, what is it, Global Risk Advisory or whatever he called the company, uh, this ex guy named Kevin Chalker, uh, the FBI's taken a look at him to see if he might have, uh, you know, violated uh, laws related to foreign lobbying, surveillance and exporting sensitive technologies and tradecraft. So, you know, but then again... He can probably afford good lawyers, given the uh, given the bills involved.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. they were doing things like providing uh, opsec training and other, t- you know, technical uh, intelligence training uh, to the Qataris, uh, you know, Qatari royal family and other people in the government over there. And there, of course, there are some laws in the U.S. about, you know, kind of. Providing those services to foreign governments, maybe not so much being a great thing. So yeah. that investigation, I'm sure, is going to you know find some find some things that are worth talking about. And we um, should point but-
0: out too that like hacked emails are just a small part of this whole program, which is you know very much looked like a gigantic you know human operation
1: yes yeah and lots of you know influencing and and hacking people or you know coercing people around people of influence to try and change their minds about things i mean there were also tie-ups where they'd hacked like philip hammond chancellor uh, in the uk like whilst he was in the middle of investigating novichok poisonings we've seen like you know pakistani um you know, same company indian company hacking pakistani leadership um so you know really interesting kind of set of customers outside of of this particular one uh, and then uh one of the bits that really made me I mean chuckle in a very schadenfreude kind of way was the bit where the boss of this Indian hacker for hire company actually works at Deloitte's
0: Yes, well, Is did uh, they, they have did. canned him? So. I, I mean, shocking. <laughs> he but got insta canned, basically. I mean, I wonder what he was doing working for Deloitte if if the sideline, if his side hustle was actually that profitable, right? So there's a bunch of stuff here that doesn't yes. quite make sense. But yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, moving on, and a committee of the European Parliament has actually released a uh, nearly 160 page report uh, looking at spyware in Europe. And some of the findings are really interesting, right? They found that countries like Malta are like giving golden passports to some executives who can then go and set up their their operations in Malta. And, you know, they found that uh, countries like Hungary and, and Poland have been abusing uh, uh, spyware, right? Some countries are doing the right thing. Some countries are doing the wrong thing. But, you know, it's just such an overarching look at the use of spyware in Europe and also how the spyware industry operates in Europe that, I mean I I'm, I'm actually really quite surprised at how much of a useful document this has turned out to be.
1: Yes, I mean it really does look like solid work. I and mean, the European Union, you know, does love to investigate and regulate things, but this does seem like a case where that's a thing that we kind of need, especially, you know, inside the EU where, you know, there's people producing spyware, working on it, you know, developing it, selling it and using it and in a political context and, you know, there is quite a lot of worms in this can, I think. Yeah, uh, and it's it's good to see them digging in and trying to do a good job of it. You know, rather than that investigation, you know, this um, this committee, you know, being kind of buried. Like they they've done done pretty well talking about it and explaining and and you know, pointing at some pretty concrete actions, and that's we kind of need that.
0: Yeah, Sophie Intveld is a a, uh, a Dutch MP uh, and served as the committee's rapporteur. And I've linked through to the press conference that she hosted. Uh, There's a video of that there. And, you know, there's some interesting stuff in there where she's saying, look, we had to rely on public sources uh, for a lot of this because as soon as you go and ask these EU member states they just say national security and then smoke bomb and they disappear right (laughs) so she's talking about like ideas like here's what we need to do moving forward like perhaps we should uh, uh, have a common understanding about what national security actually means you know that might be a nice idea and you know there's just a bunch of no nonsense actually pretty sensible ideas to come out of that so um, yeah as I say I have linked through to the presser and uh, people can find that in this week's show notes Uh, moving on and SolarWinds looks like it is settling a class action from investors for something like $26 million uh, and is facing possible enforcement action from the uh, SEC in the United States about some of the statements it made after its little uh, whoopsie. And, um, yeah, no real detail on what the SEC is going to do to them, but... I'm guessing it's going to be like the, they'll have to give undertakings related to you know security that's that's just what I feel in my waters is going to be the outcome of a SEC enforcement action here
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I imagine we would see as well. I mean, these kinds of undertakings have been leveraged on other people that have done bad things in the cyberspace. Uh, So, you know, anything that makes it more real for boards and execs, gives companies a target other than, you know, bottom line and check in a tech box is going to help with this process. So, you know, I, I I hope they come up with some sensible things that they have to do.
0: Yep yep um but again, I mean that's just pure speculation they might throw a billion dollar fine on them next week and then that's I'll be uh, then true. I'll be proved wrong who knows <laughs> now let's talk about Microsoft's uh you know they do a, a a big threat report right and they've done one that's got some conclusions in it which may or may not be reasonable right so Microsoft the big thing that the media have focused on it's it's a fairly comprehensive report it's worth a read you know there's some good stuff in there but they say that China's rules about vulnerability disclosure which kicked in about a year ago, are driving this massive upswinging in the use of O'Day by uh, Chinese threat actors. But they don't really provide any evidence, right? And and further to that, you know, the Microsoft report says, China's vulnerability reporting regulation went into effect in September 2021, marking a first in the world for a government to require the reporting of vulnerabilities into a government authority for review prior to the vulnerability being shared with the product or service owner. Now, it's my understanding that that's not actually how this works right? You have to notify the ministry of, you know, information technology or whatever when you find a bug within X hours um, of having found it. But like, you don't have to wait for them to okay you to share it then with the vendor. Okay. Uh, I can't find anything that really substantiates that. So do you have to tell them? Yes. Um, Or you are strongly encouraged to, which in China means, yeah, you have to. But this idea that, that that it's in their law and regulation that they have to give you approval to uh, uh, then report to the vendor, I don't think is well established. I mean, it's entirely possible that you will get someone on the phone saying, hey, we just saw your report. Have you told the vendor about this one yet? Because maybe you want to just hold back a little bit. I can see that being something that's happening. But, you know, a lot of the discussion, a lot of the reporting around this is just I don't know. I I don't know that it's predicated on fact entirely, right? Um, And Microsoft may have evidence, more evidence that this sort of thing is happening that's not in the report, but they're kind of asking us to take their word for it a bit here. And I don't know how comfortable I am with that.
1: Yes, so um, we've linked through in the show notes uh, to the actual Chinese legislation in question. And of course, you know, if you're not reading in the original language, maybe you lose some nuance, but it does say straight up that your first obligation is to report it to the vendor immediately it says you should immediately report it to the vendor you're not allowed to report it to anyone else other than the vendor and the relevant you know Chinese authorities but yeah that doesn't quite line up with you know how it's been sort of described elsewhere now the assertion that we've seen a whole bunch more O'Day in the wild lately I mean that that seems reasonable but correlation
0: but, does not equal causation, it, it, right? I like, mean, it
1: may be that you kind of need more O-Day these days because we are getting better at, you know, kind of more general defences. You know, um, phishing is less effective than it used to be. You know, if you want to hit a hard target, O-Day is a great way to do it rather than some of the techniques we would have used a, a while ago. So, yeah, as you say, we don't know correlation, causation. You know, if there was some more data from Microsoft, that would be great, but... You
0: know, yeah, it's just, way, it's just it, it's, weird, though, isn't it? When you read the regulation it all looks pretty reasonable. I mean, and, and, <laughs> and just, it, it actually looks good. Like, you're not allowed to overhype bugs. It's that same regulation. They've just got a very straightforward regulation which says you have to let the ministry know. Although, someone told me, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but, like, if you don't use the product that you found the bug in, I don't think you're even required to report it to the ministry. So, in the case of, who was it? Alibaba found Log4j. Um... They didn't report it to the ministry, but they should have because they, that's a product that they use. But if you just find, if you're just some random bug hunter and find some stuff, I don't think this actually compels you to report it to the ministry.
1: Yeah. I mean, although the experience on the ground in China may be, may be quite different, you might be exactly, invited right? down for, that, a, for a couple and of things. that's what I was
0: getting at before with that, that, you know, yeah. that idea yes. of, hey, maybe the phone's going to ring and they might tell you to hold off. But I don't know. I just think, you know, yeah, I just see a lot of people repeating this idea. That you need to get approval from the Chinese government before you can report a bug to a vendor, and I just don't see that anywhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, your 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 take that it seemed quite sensible was also that was my you know actually reading. It. It's like I quite like this as a, as a law, and it wouldn't fly in the West, but it, I can really see the point of it. And yeah. you know, I've commented before that you know the, all the problems of the, the Chinese state structurally, um, they are quite perhaps better equipped to deal with InfoSec issues <laughs> because of the level of central control? And, I mean, well, I you could think so,
0: but I mean, you know, Chinese InfoSec is largely a mess, right? That's so true, that's true. But I mean, like,
1: everyone's InfoSec is a mess. Yeah, I guess exactly. I just look at it and think like, I could imagine this being quite helpful. if you, Yeah, if Chinese we government. could do it this way, it would it. be yes. helpful, right? I think yes. that's where you're going with that. <laughs> that's where I'm going, yeah. Now, we've seen a couple <laughs> of
0: lawsuits settled, uh, Adam, uh, regarding NotPetya. Now, some of these, uh, some of these uh, companies that were heavily impacted by NotPetya That you tried to claim, I think in one case it wasn't even a cyber-specific policy. I think in both cases maybe they weren't even cyber-specific policies. But they've tried to claim losses uh, and the insurers said, no, act of war, um, looks like they've been forced to actually pay up in this case, which which might explain why we've seen Lloyd's of London release that guidance a little while ago about what is and what is not an act of war and what will we cover and what will we not, and we're just going to wind up with, you know, more clear terminology and policies and and uh, you know carve outs and whatnot because it it really hasn't gone the insurers' way when this has hit court.
1: Uh, yes, I mean a lot of the understanding of you know what was an act of war and what you know we kind of understand. Uh, about how international relations, you know, at a state level, interact with individual companies, like a lot of that is is not really kept up with the pace of what the modern world looks like, and um, the you know the argument about whether uh, I think the court ended up saying in the case of Mondelez that they were you know sort of collateral damage rather than being yeah. targeted by an act of war was what it kind of came down to, which. I mean, pretty clearly the case. Um, But yeah, the insurance market for cyber has taken such a beating over the last couple of years. Premiums are up, you know, the amount of people who are claiming is is higher. And yeah, the insurance insurers are all looking for ways to kind of walk back how much they're going to have to pay out, how much liability they have. Um, And yeah, we will just see the wording tightened up a bit and, um, you know, companies will understand better, you know, what their insurance cover is actually going to be like, you know, in the reality of the modern world.
0: Yeah, I mean, in one of these cases, it wasn't even a cyber specific policy. It was just their general sort of corporate insurance, right, that they were claiming against. But yeah, anyway, interesting. Now, this one's going to be interesting to chat. I'm keen to chat about this one with you because I this is something that I would have thought 10 years ago, I would have said this is an absolutely ridiculous idea. It's a terrible idea. And now I think it's actually a really good idea. Uh, which is, there, There's a, a, a few people are kicking around this idea, like the Red Cross is kicking around the idea of a digital Red Cross marker, which can be applied, say, in your zone file, right, uh, for for a domain that identifies something as like a hospital or, or whatever like, like that, right? So the idea being, you know, you can't target this um, organisation because it, it is carrying this mark of the Red Cross. What do you think about this idea,
1: Adam? I mean, my first instinct was... This sounds dumb uh, on the basis that, you know, if you're trying to avoid cyber criminals, then criminals by definition kind of don't care about, you know, such norms. But then the more I thought about it, it's like, well, we have seen some criminals come out and say, actually, yes, they would like to avoid targeting those organisations. Obviously in, you know, state-sponsored things, you know, I could see, you know, targeting restrictions, you know, probably already exist, but perhaps that's a, you know, a thing that could be helpful. It's a,
0: it is a, yeah, it's a hard one. I Honestly, I'm, I'm not sure. Like the, See, like I like, it, I like was, it for different reasons to what you've, mm-hmm. you've pointed out, which is I like it because when it comes to enforcement, sentencing, things like that, you can really mm-hmm. load, load up crooks who, okay, you willingly attack this place that carried this mark. It is a much more serious crime because of that and you're going to get extra penalty units because of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's a reasonable argument. Yes, I mean, it, 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 it makes it very clear, right, we're not dealing with any ambiguity at that point, and that's, yeah. that's helpful, I guess, especially if you're on you know, the prosecutorial side. Um, so, you know, 10,
0: 10 years ago, I would have thought it would be stupid because, you know, it's not like it's going to be some magical cloak that's going to stop people from attacking you. But now I think, well, no, but if someone does and you catch them, you can really uh, punish them more uh, because this, this organisation may, may have carried this mark.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can see it, you know, providing some disincentive for organisations, attackers that, you know, do want to stay off the radar, you know, try and stay a bit un, you know, low-key and not end up with, you know, the hounds being released in their direction. And, you know, if that makes it clear, like if you're, if you're a ransomware as a service operator and you want your business to be smooth, you could just say, we won't take affiliates, you know, we won't operate in affiliates that have, you know, um, four affiliates that have targets with these marks on it, and that might help your crime you know, be more profitable and work better longer term. So, I mean, the problem of
0: course is that healthcare is a real profit centre for ransomware crews, right? It is right now, yes, Mm. yeah.
1: And, you know, profit is, uh, you know, a thing that really does motivate these people. So, I mean, if you're willing to attack a hospital right now, why wouldn't you be willing to attack a hospital if it had a Red Cross on it? Yeah. Um, So Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, look, I think you and me are sort of at about the same place, which is like, it's... It's not dumb. It's not. It seems maybe dumb, but it's probably not dumb. And that yeah. makes me feel weird to say that, to be
1: honest. It, it, it does. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of this stuff, and in Info- now that InfoSec has become kind of so complicated uh, and so involved in everything, things that, like, are computer science dumb, but pragmatic, actually useful. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe this is kind of in the same category where it, you know, it doesn't make sense. And if you, like, if you were in, in a, like, university debating club. I mean, you would have arguments on both sides of this that you could make a strong, you know, kind of strong arguments about. But actually, pragmatically, it might move the needle a little bit. It doesn't have to stop everything. But as you say, like, there are places where this could provide some benefit. And that's weird.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's weird. We live in... (laughs) We live in strange times. very
1: strange times,
0: yes. Uh, Joseph Mann has a story up on the Washington Post about a certificate authority, a a rather, you know, like a Root CA, that looks a little shady, Adam, I'm not going to lie.
1: Yes, so Joseph Mann's dug into this company called uh, Trust Core Systems, which, as you say, Root CA has also issued some intermediate CA certificates, and they're like a company registered in Panama, and their postal address is some, like, UPS shop, and it's not super clear who controls it and then there's some nexus with you know some like network intercept firms and some spyware data collectors and it really does look quite shady uh, and the more you I mean, it's one of those stories Like you read it and your mind starts to kind of glow a little bit about yeah yeah the, i, I, I had the same feeling mean. like it
0: i i got dizzy reading it you know with all of the and this person was involved in this who subsequently registered the thing and the you know like it's a bit it's a bit heavy going in that regard yeah, yeah it
1: certainly is there's a lot of you can totally imagine uh, you know joseph Ben's office with all of the, the peppy know, silver boards. stuff yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yes yeah yeah lots of strings on on pegs on the wall um but, given that we are talking about the entire global trust route, uh, it feels like perhaps we should have a slightly higher bar yeah. being in the root CA list and yeah. I think you know Mozilla has asked some questions that the um, this research has obviously been provided to you know Google and Microsoft and Apple and Mozilla as custodians of the root trust list. but it really doesn't look great, especially when one of these companies that's sort of you know vaguely involved packet forensics, sells equipment for doing man in the middle, which would be quite helpful to have a root CA cert if you were in that business. In fact, if you were providing it through the US government, uh, they have a, this company had a packet forensics, um, has a like, multi-million dollar contract with the Pentagon. Mm. Uh, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't feel good.
0: No, no. But I mean, this is why we pin certs for major services. But, you know, even if you're dealing with minor services, forums, whatever, you might catch someone's password, you know, that they're reusing for their Gmail, which is, you know, going to be a pin cert and stuff. So this is still going to be useful. So yeah, probably. Uh, like, it's my feeling that this company will probably be kicked out of the browsers, and that's going to make the FBI sad. <laughs> is is really my takeaway here?
1: That, that probably does. It does kind of feel that way. They'll just have to
0: fall back to the other five shady CAs that they're doing well, business yeah, with, right? Exactly right.
1: Yeah. Mostly, I just feel bad for Joseph men's sanity whilst pulling this story together. That's the real the real casualty.
0: <laughs> hey, Joseph. By the way, if you're listening, <laughs> nice work. We got one from Adam Janovsky over at the Record here, which is. This Boeing subsidiary that, like, oh, what do they do? They, they distribute, like, um, flight warnings digitally to to various customers. Looks like they maybe got ransomware and some of this information distribution broke down, which is probably uh, not a great thing to be happening. Like, this is just one example, one more example of ransomware popping up somewhere that causes unforeseen problems elsewhere, right?
1: Yes, I mean, Jeppesen is um, of you know, organisation that does flight planning and a bunch of other services for, like, operational things at airlines, and that is facilitated over quite a lot of VPNs to quite a lot of airlines and, and airports and, and locations like that. So, you know, beyond the initial, like, maybe they got ransomware, whatever, whatever happened in their environment that has caused some, you know, uh, lack of service, like, they are a very well-connected place, and if I were an airline risk person, uh, then those connections are a thing that, you know, historically have been looked at a bit sus and this, this does not provide much assurance for me. So, mm. yeah, bad time uh, to be an airline, bad time to be Boeing and Jefferson um, and let's hope they can uh, evict whatever attacker has been in their environment successfully.
0: Now, you've never told me this. We've never had this discussion, but just based on what you said, I can tell you've done some pen testing at airlines and maybe because <laughs> like, you know the company, you know what it does, you know how it accesses like... So I'm guessing, yeah, you've, you've you've seen this before.
1: I have some feelings, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay,
0: right, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Jonathan Greig over at The Record uh, is talking about, he's written a story about a um, report that has tied, and I've seen it pop up elsewhere, actually, uh, this coverage, uh, FIN7 uh, is is tied to the Blackbuster uh, ransomware operation. So, you know, FIN7, j- they just keep getting tied to more and more activity, right? And this is kind of proof that, in order to make a dent on cybercrime activity, the number of people that you need to take off the board is actually not that big. Yeah,
1: I mean, these are definitely one of the the better operators in the whole crime world. I mean, going back as as far back as, like, the Carbonac Trojan, which is kind of where they, they got their start, as far as I'm aware. Um, they are a pretty competent, pretty tight, uh, and clearly very effective crew. And, yeah, I'm not surprised to see them, you know, kind of tied into a whole bunch of other... Successful operations over the years, yeah, like Darkseid,
0: uh, so. Black Matter, Reval, and Alfie, like you know, <laughs> yes, that's, and now Blackbuster, like they're they're busy,
1: yes, busy and effective, yeah, uh, and clearly you know able to continue to operate through all of the other challenges that um, that the cybercrime world has faced. So yeah, they're a serious operator,
0: yeah, indeed, indeed. Now, Adam, you know we've we've seen Sisa make some big claims about what it's going to do to help, you know, secure all manner of things, uh, in the United States. And one of the concerns that you and me have always had is like, how are you going to scale this sort of stuff? Right? Like you're going to hit capacity constraints, uh, pretty quick. And, uh, we are starting to see that now.
1: Uh, yes, this is a story from Kevin Collier and Julia Ainsley talking about, um, the number of government organizations that handle, you know, election related things in the U S that have reached out to Scissor for help, um, and found themselves on a, on a pretty long backlog. Uh, something like a hundred orgs are currently sitting in the backlog waiting for you know risk and violence assessments or other help from Scissor for the elections. And you know, given that Scissor um, says that they've serviced something like what four hundred plus uh, hygiene tests for election related entities, if there's only a hundred on the backlog, that's great. But the sorts of uh, investigations that they're doing and the sort of support that they're providing, you know, is more than just, you know, some scans and some automation, right? There's real people having to go on site, do real work. Um, and scaling that stuff up is really, really hard. Um, and I have a lot of sympathy for this in, you know, trying to manage, you know, you know, provisioning that many pen tests, getting good people, that is genuinely hard work. And, uh, you know, especially when you've got an under time pressure like they are with the elections.
0: Yeah. You know, scale is such a problem in this discipline, right? Yes, it really really is. It just is. Ah, Hush Puppy, the business email compromise crook uh, who was arrested and extradited to the United States. I think he was picked up somewhere in Qatar and then extradited to the US. Um, You know, he's a Nigerian fella. Pretty well known, pretty famous, mostly because he was the one who was all over like Instagram and stuff, hanging out with Rolls Royces and Lamborghinis and expensive watches and stuff. Uh, He's now been sentenced to 11 years in prison in America. So sucks to be you, dude. Yeah, it
1: certainly does. Uh, He was ordered by the court to pay back uh, 1.7 million in restitution to his victims, which, you know, given that he was involved in causing tens of millions of dollars worth of losses, laundering money for North Koreans and all sorts of other bad things, um, you know, Maybe that's that small change. But either way, 11 years in jail, um, you know, he's not going to have a good time.
0: No, I can't imagine uh, he will. Uh, We got a report here that Dropbox experienced a bit of drama. They had 130 code repos uh, compromised in a phishing campaign. But it looks like these code repos were like where Dropbox were keeping third-party libraries that they would modify for their own purposes. But, you know, the attackers probably made off with some, maybe some useful config files or something. I don't know. And this all interesting because
1: uh, the attackers targeted like a continuous integration system. they using Circle CI, uh, sent some phishing emails reporting to be from their Circle CI, and then used that to steal creds and also steal multi-factor auth, so doing multi MFA pass through and you know onwards access from there to you know a bunch of Git repos. As you say, not necessarily the most important stuff, like not the core product things, but certainly plenty of options. You know, to find key material and work your way onwards. Um, what I thought was interesting about that is it's either super targeted, smart, you know, hitting the developers you know, specifically with an idea of what you're going to do, or it's a bunch of kids from South America, and we don't know which.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to know. Is, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what is a sophisticated
1: world. or is it kids? What a world. We don't know.
0: Now, this story from the Daily Swig Tell me what you think, because initially I saw the headline, which is scan.io API unwittingly leaks sensitive URLs and data. And I thought, eh. And then I read it and I thought, actually, no, this is actually kind of interesting. Was that your journey as well, Adam? Uh, yeah, actually, I had to read it twice
1: before I decided that it was, in fact, interesting, because it is. So this uh, story talks about uh, people who are using Earlscan. So Scan's a service where you like you submit a URI to an earl to it, and it will go and do a bunch of analysis. Uh, so you can use it in, like, automation workflows to get screenshots and data about the makeup of a website or vulnerabilities, or you can use it to check for vulns, or you can use it to do recon without showing who's doing it, without it being attributed to your or IP addresses or whatever else, um, and so uh, this relates to organizations that were using their API to like automatically scan stuff. So, like if your SOC ingests a bunch of logs, you might send off you know uh, URLs you see go past scan to URL scans to you know to enrich your you know your reporting or whatever else. Um, and you can submit your URLs to it in a way that they are private, or you can submit them such that they're open to the community to you know use and share. Um, if you submit mm,
0: cookies yeah yeah
1: exactly like if you submit things <laughs> where there are you know parameters for those URLs, you know things like password reset tokens in the url or you know verification things or anything else where there's like some probably not meant to be public aspect to it uh you anyway, know all of this stuff was ending up in earl scan because some people were not submitting these with the like private flag set um and that actually, you know, you could probably bust into a bunch of people through those kinds of leaks, uh, and maybe it's not a thing that people thought about, and I guess underscores the rush to, you know, have a, a, you know, a sock or a monitoring system or whatever else, and, and enrichment and, and all the data processing that happens automatically, everyone wants to see beautiful panes of glass. Without necessarily thinking about all the things that that might mean. It's um, kind of so like,
0: like the VirusTotal thing, right? Where yes, people exactly. were just throwing attachments blindly into VT and it was all this business critical stuff that anyone <laughs> yes, with, yes. A, with a proper account could go and find. Yes, yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. When you're you know, learning about mergers and acquisitions through PDFs and, <laughs> and VirusTotal. Um, so, yeah, it's a, you know, we, we do love setting up automation and sometimes there are unexpected consequences.
0: Matt Burgess for Wired has a great feature up here, Adam, that I think uh, is 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 worth a read about what what he's calling the most vulnerable place on the internet. And of course, this is where a lot of internet connectivity, a lot of cabling, runs through a vulnerable point in Egypt. And I think just with everything going on with like Nord Stream pipelines being being blown up, and you know mysterious cable cuts happening due to a you know order of. Uh, Neo Luddites running around with cable cutters and like all sorts of nutty, nutty, nutty stuff happening uh, in in 2022. You know, this is probably something policymakers should at least familiarise themselves with.
1: Yes, the the article talks about like there's a natural geography that kind of pushes undersea cables, you know, through Egypt and through the the, the canal, Suez so Canal, uh, to connect you know, Europe and, and and Asia and the rest of the world, something like 17% of the world's internet traffic kind of goes through that region. Uh, and that is a lot of eggs in one basket. Uh, when we've seen cable cuts... Uh, you know even in recent history you know they can be really devastating to you know when you don't necessarily understand how resilient your upstream upstream's upstream provider is right you end up with people you know getting diverse circuits into their data center but then three providers up you're all on one cable uh, vulnerable to one boat anchor or one diver um, and of course egypt and that region of the world you know hasn't always been the most stable i think the egyptian government egyptian telcos do charge quite large fees to run your cables uh, through the country a little money making exercise there as well and we've seen some people you know like google for example uh you know plan some of their cable routes to try and add a bit more diversity to that part of it but yeah we don't we don't think about that undersea infrastructure particularly and certainly you know when that Nord Stream gas pipeline went up that was one of the things that you know made, made me think of of undersea cables as you know also a very very logical target you know beyond just boat anchors and, and accidental things
0: now, just quickly, Ian Levy is the departing technical director of the UK's NCSC and uh, has written a uh, long blog post uh, titled "So Long and Thanks for All the Bits," which is a wonderful Douglas Adams reference that I completely support. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting blog post that is worth everyone's time to read, Adam.
1: Yeah, I think if you're in the Infosec field, this is probably a must read. Like it has some some gems that will just make you chuckle, but it also has some, I think, pretty insightful, you know, insightful comments around the you know, the reasons we've kind of ended up where we are and a bunch of things that you you know you only really get from the experience of doing this in a national scale, dealing with big problems for, for many, many years. So I really enjoyed it. I would thoroughly recommend it as a lunchtime read.
0: Now before we go, I do wanna have a quick chat, just a quick chat about what's happening on the bird site, Adam.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What's happening is chaos and madness. Yeah, because (laughs) last week I
0: said, oh, you know, the new boss will probably be like, you know, the same as the old boss. Now, I said this thinking that Elon Musk wouldn't do, uh, like rush through a sequence of completely suicidal, idiotic things, right? Um, And it turns (laughs) out I was wrong. I was wrong because, um, you know, he's torpedoed forward, revenue and i'll just say like risky business our sponsorships advertising what do you want whatever you want to call it is essentially booked up until january 2024 right like this stuff a lot of it is booked out with long lead times people are assigned budget then they allocate that budget you know some of it at least for a year there's like a baseline of stuff that they will allocate for a year so a lot of their forward revenue has just created he has put that site In a very tricky position, and and it's amazing to me too when I look at the way people in tech are talking about this. Like it's clear they don't really understand advertising, and that organizations are very, very concerned with brand and reputation risk, and that's okay too. Like if if I started platforming people on this show who were spouting lies about election hacking and whatnot, I would lose my advertisers. I would lose my sponsors. Now. That's not to say that there's a shadowy cabal of people controlling what I can and can't say. That just means if I start platforming liars who are telling lies that are damaging and dangerous, people aren't going to want to be associated with this podcast anymore. If I found that there was evidence of true uh, you know, election hacking or stuff like that, you know, I'd, I'd happily report on that and my sponsors would stick with me. It's when you're dealing with damaging, polarizing, disinformation, racism, stuff like that. People don't want to go anywhere near it. Right. CMOs aren't stupid. They don't want to go anywhere near it. They don't want to be seen to be platforming crazy shit. Right. And this is this is all pretty reasonable stuff. So I think Twitter's ad problems are real. Okay. And and I think they're they're a little bit more serious than people have quite cottoned onto because that budget that was going to get allocated to Twitter has now been allocated elsewhere. And you're going to get the same ROI, if not better, by putting that money elsewhere advertising on twitter is not essential they don't de- deliver anything particularly unique so that money's not coming back quickly let's let's just put it that way and there are problems with some of the the ways that musk is planning to monetize twitter blue right so that they're saying they'll cut the advertising in half uh, for, uh, uh, for you know, paid subscribers. But that's going to cost them money, right? Like, and probably more than they realize. Anyway, so I'm, I'm sort of rambling a little bit here, but it's been frustrating watching the way people have been talking about this. So, of course, what we've seen over the last week since we last went to uh, to air is a massive migration of InfoSec people onto Mastodon. And um, I finally gave up the other day and joined them, Adam. So I am at business at infosec.exchange, which is where most InfoSec people have gone. But... It's occurred to me that Mastodon is actually better than it was last time I looked at it, which was a few years ago. And further to that, I think it's actually a really interesting idea. The idea of a federated, simple social media experience, right? I just want you to imagine for a moment, Adam, what if Google said everyone who has a Gmail account now has a Mastodon account as well? And they stood up a major instance and they monetized that by selling ads on that instance. And maybe they, just like they have with Gmail, you know, maybe they wrote a really good client for it. That could actually represent a serious threat to Twitter. You know, yeah, I, think, I, 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 think, I think Mastodon, I think Mastodon, I, I was very, very skeptical. And now I'm, I'm still skeptical. I'm less skeptical. Let's put it that way.
1: Yes, certainly. If a big infrastructure operator, you know, I guess Facebook wouldn't do it because it competes with their own interests. But I mean, Google's attempts at social networking have not been super successful, and you know that's the thing—they don't have it
0: right. And and yes. here it is, ripe for the taking.
1: Yeah, stepping in and, and rescuing you know the corpse of Twitter, honestly, probably wouldn't cost that much. They've already got a heap kind of infrastructure; the protocol's already there. You know, all of the work has kind of been done. You know, in in the design and whatever else. You know, they could just throw some SREs at it to make it work well and scale, and they would be in a really great place. And that's a honestly pretty compelling compared to you know the, the just every time you open Twitter, it just you know, it it makes me mad at how dumb it is. <laughs> you know, right. how all the stupid things happening. Um, and I mean, a credible alternative is it, everyone's looking, and and yeah. as you say, most people are heading towards you know mastodons of some sort, but. You know, there is a lot of confusion about how it works and what it means and and you know, everyone having to learn a new platform when they've been in, on Twitter for years. You know, is hard work. But
0: Well, I mean, a lot of these a lot of these uh, extreme right wing networks like Gab and I think Truth Social uh, as well is based on Mastodon, and they violated the license, which is you know, apparently which is not really a huge <laughs> surprise. But like mm, you me. know, what we've seen is like uh, Gab is is is, you know, it's a Mastodon instance, which all the other instances just block and they're just like bye bye, right? So you will choose an instance where they're good at keeping the Nazis out, where they do good moderation, right? You'll just choose an instance that has good moderation uh, and, that is, and that is reliable, right? So I could just see this as being like the SMTPification of Twitter, right? So it's, I, it can just be like an email address. It can work like email works. I don't see why that can't succeed, the web yeah, malification uh, of Twitter, right?
1: Like it's Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, people, you know, Twitter's been around for a while, but I mean, people forget that we had, you know, MySpace and Bebo and they were huge too and they they died.
0: Yeah, but and wouldn't it, it be great it, if it did get replaced by this, you know, open source protocol that can be used by anyone and you could have a, you know, publication. I think anyone who sells ads has an interest in standing up a Mastodon server at this, at this point. Like New York Times could do it, right? Google can do it. Like there's all sorts of organizations now who can just move in and say, hey, come and, you know, come and have your account with us. And I believe, I'm not 110% sure on this, but I believe Mastodon accounts are actually transportable. So you can take your followers from one instance to the other.
1: Yeah. I mean, that does, it certainly sounds better than the just complete chaos that we, you know, that you see everybody logging into Twitter and, you know, you know, I feel bad now for logging into Twitter. It's like I'm, you know, firing up TikTok and on my Huawei phone, right? like I'm starting to feel the, like I'm doing the wrong thing here uh, when I, when I log in. So,
0: But see, the know, crazy I, thing is Musk hasn't even really done anything yet. I mean, he's fired a bunch of people, but mostly what is destroying his business, what is causing his user base to flee. And what is causing advertisers to flee is just dumb shit that he said that he didn't need to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean uh, <laughs> Like, it's amazing. Yeah. Like, and I'm a small time podcast publisher and I've just been watching his tweets, like probably understanding how significantly damaging they are to Twitter's business than most and just thinking, my God, you know, are you an idiot? And the only conclusion <laughs> I can come to <laughs> is that he is in fact an idiot.
1: Yeah, I'm on science point to it. Okay.
0: Anyway, sorry, non-infosec content, but I just thought some people might be interested to hear... Just some thoughts there because, as I say, like a lot of people don't quite get that advertising isn't just about views wherever you can get them, right? Brand risk is real. People aren't going to advertise at Twitter right now. Uh, They're going to be less likely to, right? And just offering bargain rates to bring people back, it's not quite how it works. But anyway, Adam, that's actually it for this week's news. Thanks a lot for joining me. And, uh, yeah, we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time for our sponsor review now with Andrew Morris from Grey Noise. Grey Noise provides telemetry on mass scanning on the internet. So if you see an IP trying to scan or exploit something on your network, you can look up that IP in Grey Noise and see if it's associated with mass scanning behavior. And you can do these lookups for free on Grey Noise's website. But the paid product is API access, so you can integrate this telemetry into your seam and the idea is you save a lot of sock time and hence money and yeah that's why grey noise exists they can deliver some roi to your sock so andrew joined me to talk about a few things there is a bit of a chat at the at the front of this interview about new features uh, in grey noise and then we take a weird detour into talking about the relative merits of alibaba cloud (laughs) don't worry uh, that will make sense when you hear it Uh, But, yeah, they have introduced a couple of features, and the first feature they've introduced is providing more information about IPs that have been doing malicious stuff. So... If you're an ISP abuse team uh, using gray noise to detect compromised devices at your customer's premises that have been like, you know, made a part of a botnet, you know, whether they're business customers or residential, it's not enough just to know that an IP was associated with mass scanning at some point in time. You need to know when it was active so you can go back and see which customer it was, like who held that IP at that time. Uh, It's also useful context in the SOC as well, uh, which Andrew will explain shortly. So yeah. He starts off talking about that and then about some work they're doing to automatically cluster botnets with a new feature, which is also, yeah, super interesting. Here's Andrew.
2: It's insufficient to just say, hey, this IP address was bad. You need to also be able to say, this IP address was bad at exactly this time and at all of these times in between so that the analyst can kind of marry it.
0: Yeah. 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 So you can't just say this, this IP was once bad. You have to be able to say this IP was bad between 6 PM and 5 AM on Sunday. And, and,
2: And the other side of that as well is that there's always a cleanup period too. So here's another problem that this solves is like, let's say I'm running an internet service provider And um, great, I get an alert that gray noise has identified a device that's compromised in my network that I'm in charge of protecting. Cool, let's say I do the thing to get it mitigated, but it's still going to show up as being compromised in gray noise, right? It's still going to show up as being, you know, compromised, malicious or whatever for n number of days. And this allows us to actually show users even more like, no, this is exactly when the behavior stopped, right? The behavior stopped at this exact point. And so that's, again, that's another, just more granularity for the user so that they can actually see things changing over time.
0: Now I get how that solves some operational problems, but uh, there is another feature that you've introduced, and this is the one that I find more interesting actually, because uh, it's you know there's a lot of research uh, possibilities here. But you've got a feature now where you can find an IP, an IP that's doing something bad involving mass scanning, and then you can ask GrayNoise, show me similar IPs, right? So that matches based on OS, you know, ports used, u- user agent strings, and whatever. So I'm guessing you know, you're gonna get varying results, I'd imagine, but I'm guessing that if you put the right IP into this feature, you're gonna find a whole botnet.
2: Yeah, exactly, and so we've already, we've actually done this quite a few times. It's really fun to see the stuff that shakes out at a high level, basically. So here's the use case, right? You're tracking something in gray noise and, and, and gray noise collects a lot of data. And a lot of the time we're able to pretty definitively say that a device is compromised or that it's being used to do malicious stuff, right? But sometimes we know a lot of the raw behaviors that it's doing, that a a given IP address or lots of IP addresses are doing, we can see those raw behaviors, but they may or may not actually be surfaced enough for us to be willing to say, like, gray noise feels confident that it's bad or that it's malicious. But maybe that you, the user, actually determine nope, I'm pretty sure this thing's bad. I saw it doing something bad on my network, and so I'm pretty sure this thing's bad. Let me see everybody else who's acting similar to this IP address, right? I want to see everybody else who's doing the same stuff, scanning the same ports, using the same user agents, uh, the same operating systems, and uh, similar patterns of tags. And this is actually how you shake out botnets really quickly. And one of the things that I've really loved from looking at this traffic is that we've we've already seen a lot of different cases where we'll, we'll punch in one IP address and be like, cool, show me all the other ones that look exactly like this. And we'll immediately see that even though we don't use the feature of like which countries it's coming after, we'll immediately see it cluster up a lot in different countries. And so we'll see that a lot of these behaviors, and that's because there are a lot of commonalities in the devices that people are running on network perimeters just basically because of what products are available for people to buy in given areas, which is super interesting. So yeah. essentially essentially, what we're able to find, what, what shakes out very quickly, is you can pivot off of one given IP address and you can see all of the other ones in gray noise that are acting the same way, that are moving and that are that are basically evolving in the same way that that one is. And nine times out of 10, it's a botnet. One time out of 10, it's basically just a distributed mass scanning system, right? But a lot, a lot of the time it's a botnet.
0: Yeah, so I wonder like, you know, once you've got this sort of info, there's going to be some threat intel companies and companies like Microsoft and whatever who are really going to want to, get access to this information because it's like where else do you collect it really you know i mean there are there are other techniques right you know sinkholing and whatever and domain tricks but Actually capturing the scans, actually capturing the attempted at exploitation, like on network sensors all over the world, which is what you do, like that's smoking gun sort of level uh, of intelligence there. So are you, are you bundling some of this stuff up and sharing it with companies that have armies of lawyers that can go and make botnets like this disappear?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, basically on one hand, we're working pretty closely with like varying levels of either kind of on one hand we're working with the private security companies who are basically doing as much work as they can cleaning up parts of the internet on the other hand we're also working with a lot of governments um and computer emergency response teams on this so c-certs and certs etc um And then, yeah, we've actually got, I mean, separately, we've got an OEM business at Grey Noise, right, where it's like we actually take this and we like basically license it over to other people's security product companies, uh, security products, so that they can actually license, incorporate this data into their stuff. But yeah, I mean, largely we're working with hosting providers, um, any kind of either government or nonprofit that's tasked with basically protecting their little chunk of the internet, their little corner of the internet, Um, or yeah, a lot of these technology giants that have kind of mandates to get you know as much of this stuff cleaned up as humanly possible so yeah, that's i'll warn you now
0: i warn you now we've got a lot of listeners from a lot of certs uh who listen to this show so you're you're going to get inundated with data requests i think no, after that, this that, goes that, out
2: that's fantastic because honestly this is like like the the i'll be really really interested to know for anybody out there listening like where you know especially this stuff shows up any of the patterns that that people are noticing especially as it's as it's Uh, related to like geographic patterns or anything like that. That's the other part of the feature that we're releasing here pretty soon actually is that like there's there's kind of a, you know, another limitation of gray noise historically has been that there's really no clear difference when you're using the gray noise web interface or any of our products when someone scans either part of the internet or a lot of the internet or maybe just one or two gray noise sensors or something like that. Um, So we've actually rolled out a destination metadata field as well or a set of features as well where we're basically also able to find kind of Whenever an IP address is only scanning a subset of the internet, like maybe they're only seeing, we're only seeing them in our AWS sensors, or maybe we're only seeing them in our Ukrainian sensors, or maybe we're only seeing them in two sensors, or maybe we're seeing them in a thousand sensors, right? Yeah, because previously you the- got
0: you got like a binary response, right? Exactly. Which is that yeah, this this box has done scanning this for some. This box fortimet- has either
2: scanned the internet or it has not, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And now it's like, okay, this one is scanning Lithuania,
2: right? Exactly. And that, that's, and so that's- that
0: is useful context.
2: Exactly. Especially to your point for those computer emergency response teams, right? Like it can actually be really useful to know like, yes, this IP address is hitting, you know, a very large part of the internet, but it just so happens to be that every single part of that large part of the internet is perhaps located in Israel or perhaps located in Mexico. Right. And so that's another part that's really useful, especially as we continue working with, you know, intelligence apparatuses and governments and stuff like that who are trying to, and as the world heats up around us. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's all getting a bit interesting lately. Um, it is, it is. Now, speaking of the sensors, I'd imagine you're still building out your sensor network, right? Like that's that's kind of going to be work that never stops. Right? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, so so basically because that's the, the more that we saturate different corners of the internet, the more accurate our picture of what's going on on the internet is, and the more granularity we're able to kind of apply our analytics to. So for example, um, we're constantly adding gray noise collectors in new countries And at the beginning, it's really easy because you basically just say like, "Yep, we're going to deploy to every region of AWS, Google Cloud, and Azure," and that's going to cover like 30 countries. And that's all well and good, except you know when you start wanting to get more visibility into kind of countries that don't have AWS presence and that don't have a Google Cloud data center, right? A lot lot of areas in like perhaps you know less developed parts of the of the world that are still really really interesting, right? So we're constantly deploying new stuff to you know areas of. of of now areas of Europe, areas of Asia, we've got collectors running in China, we've got collectors running in Russia, we've got collectors running in a lot of different countries that are basically adjacent to all those. We've got collectors in Taiwan, we've got collectors in a lot of these areas. And what's really interesting is once once we're deployed to an area, that's when we're able to see all of the really interesting traffic that's exclusively hitting that area but nothing outside of that area. And that's where we shake out a lot of really interesting, maybe nation state behavior, maybe not, but definitely behavior that for whatever reason, the adversary is particularly keenly interested in uh, finding vulnerabilities in software in devices that are specifically running in that place. And so, as you can imagine, that's wildly interesting for us.
0: Yeah, yeah, I gotta ask, I'm curious, have you messed around with Alibaba Cloud?
2: so uh yes (laughs) yeah 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 so
0: so my question was gonna be right like it just it just occurred to me while you were talking that like here is someone i'm talking to who's probably played around with alibaba cloud i don't know anyone else who's had a reason to to play around with alibaba cloud my question is how is it
2: honestly honestly it's um remarkably similar and similarly laid out and documented to aws um that's really so
0: surprising isn't it? it's not like china to have a product that mimics somehow a product it's, from the west it's,
2: and what's and what's funny is on one hand on one hand i'm like go figure and on the other hand i'm like wow this is actually really easy for me to use because i'm pretty used <laughs> yeah. to i'm pretty used to using aws um but honestly like it's it's basically just kind of like a slightly less mature um and uh you know and more specific to chinese like version of aws it's it's remarkably similar in a lot of ways um just 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 a little bit less mature right
0: did they did they leave out some of the dumb stuff though like are there are there parts of it that are a bit better because they basically just copied it but went later
2: I couldn't tell you because all I've really used is the features and the functionality that let you spin up those, cl- like yeah. just spin up cloud spin machines. Spin up an instance, right? You spin yeah, up an yeah, instance yeah. and then that's it for us, right? Like yeah. I'm sure, you know, maybe they have an incredibly killer Kubernetes offering, but I've never used it before. I just I just spin up sensors over there and then we walk around. It's away. funny
0: that you mentioned that though, because the part of Amazon where you spin up instances is the ugly part, right? So if they yeah. copied that, like woof, you know? <laughs> Because it's, you know, yeah. it's evolved out of Amazon being a dot-com era bookstore. is like, yeah, you know, right, right, <laughs> right.
2: yeah, 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 exactly. And fu- yeah, I mean, funny. Although it, it does, I haven't it used it in feel... a few
0: years, but it was like that last time I touched it. It was awful. Uh, yeah. So, so it's, bad.
2: It's still, it's still like that. It hasn't really changed a lot. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah I we've I got, think it did. at this point, we've got uh, several hundred sensors running in geographically located in China right now. And so we're able to see how internet wide scan and attack traffic varies uh, when it is exclusively hitting China versus outside of China. Which does the is really great
0: firewall interfere with inbound scans, though? Because I'd yeah, imagine it would.
2: It does. And
0: so, yeah, yeah. So tell me about that.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, basically what we find is in addition to the nuances of what traffic does and does not hit certain areas inside of a country, um, we're actually also able to kind of derive any kind of network level blocks uh, that are in place in between wherever it is that we're listening from and whoever is scanning, crawling, doing the attacks. So that means that we're able to pretty consistently see at times when we deploy to a, a particular hosting provider or a particular country. And we've yeah, you never can Yeah, seen...
0: <laughs> you can enumerate the great firewall rules.
2: Exactly, because we can yeah. see like, oh, that's weird. We've never gotten any traffic on port 25 or port, 20, port 445, like ever. Right, And so that means that it's like, well, it's probably either being blocked somewhere upstream of you. So either at the, the hosting provider edge or at the country's gateway, and with a little bit of extra creativity, you can also figure out exactly the content of what messages that are moving from A to B would actually cause one of those blocks to take place. And so it's, it's a really fun little set of problems that you sort to you've shake out. So have you been flinging out.
0: some packets back and forth with things like I, Tiananmen uh, I, I, in them, I have.
2: I, I have not, but I actually have, I have a friend who has done some research on this topic by basically brute forcing like combinations of uh, controversial topics to figure out what elicits a block decision and what doesn't. It's really interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to. You don't want to play around with that too much. Are you going to wind no, up losing, say, your, is- losing your senses? Right. Yeah,
2: it's like a, it's a it's a fun little uh, you know side, side project for me. But no, like I said, I mean, we're primarily we just spin stuff up and and walk away. Right. That's generally what we do.
0: I got to say though, I think all countries should take a leaf out of China's book and drop twenty five and four four five. Like I just but think- well. I mean, maybe not twenty-five, because then you're not going to have email anymore. But like, you know, uh, ISPs should certainly drop uh, twenty-five. But dropping four, four, five at a at a at a beachhead, like, just drop that stuff at the core, guys. Come Honestly,
2: on. I absolutely think that more like internet service providers and whoever runs the pipes into and out of a country should take a more active role in what is and is not allowed. Just from like a like a network. Oh man, you,
0: yeah, you, right? you're preaching to the choir, but there's some nanog guy uh, yeah. just. His beard is wobbling because he's shaking with rage right now after hearing you say that. Um, But uh, Andrew Morris, we're actually way over time already uh, because it's always so great to chat to you, my friend. Um, Thanks for the update on what you've been up to over there at Grey Noise and we'll chat to you soon.
2: Sounds good. Thanks so much, Patrick.
0: That was Andrew Morris from Grey Noise there and you can find them at greynoise.io and that is G-R-E-Y-N-O-I-S-E. Io. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.